Also, um, I, I don't know if you guys know the history of Christ Central, um, and I'm getting too old to remember the math here, but I think we're seven, eight years old. Anyway, we were up, um, Christ Central was planted out of Uptown Church seven, eight, somebody go correct me here, seven or eight years ago. And about the same time we were planted, or maybe just a little bit before, Uptown also planted another church in Hope Community Church. And uh, Mark Upton, who's going to lead us in, and preach to us this morning, is the, the senior pastor at Hope Community Church. And uh, we are honored to have Mark here. He's someone that we have uh, labored with and um, served with for years. Um, Hope Community is an incredibly wonderful uh, church partner. We've, um, they work with us closely on a lot of things, and we're just excited to have Mark here today. Wherever Mark is. There he is. Um, so I'm going to um, read the scripture. If you guys will turn, turn in your bulletin to Revelation. We're going to start at chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And then verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. It's a great honor to be with you guys today and to be able to speak here at Christ Central um, as somebody who... uh, was involved in the oversight committee. I was actually your elder briefly at the beginning of this church before Bill was ordained. I was an elder uh, overseeing uh, the uh, hiring of Howard and uh, the placement of Christ Central Church and the commissioning of uh, this church uh, and the ordination and examination of your elders. And I can tell you that I'm very proud of who you've become. Um, and I'm excited about what God's doing here among you. Uh, today, uh, we are going to consider uh, the end of the story. Um, we did a series at Hope called The Story of Redemption, and uh, this was the last sermon that I preached in that series. Um, and it came out of a talk that I gave to the students at the Nodi School of the Arts. Um, it, it was an idea that kind of germinated there and then became a sermon that I preached at Hope, and now hopefully God will use it to speak to your heart as well. Um, it started with this idea. Uh, Vincent Van Gogh is by far my favorite artist. I am a massive Van Gogh fan. And um, he has said many interesting things throughout his life. Um, but one of the things that I find so fascinating about Van Gogh is... Uh, that he now currently has, according to Wikipedia, five of the top 20 most valuable paintings in existence, okay? Uh, in the pu- uh, of the public auctions that have taken place in art uh, in the last century, uh, Van Gogh has five of the top 20 most, ever, uh, it, most expensive paintings ever sold. 
the last one being one that sold in 1992, uh, excuse me, in May of 1990 for $82.5 million, all right? He had a more recent selling than that, but this was the, the last biggie he had sold. Um, and even though uh, the art market has tanked recently due to the economic downturn, um, most people still think that that painting, it's a painting of a guy named uh, Dr. Gachet, is worth well north of $100 million. Now, the thing that's fascinating to me about this is that during Van Gogh's life, that painting was literally worthless. It was literally worthless. He could not find a buyer for that painting. Most art historians believe that Van Gogh only successfully sold one painting in his entire life. He sold it for $1,000 to a woman named Anna Boke, who bought a painting titled The Red Vineyard. Now, the thing that's fascinating about that to me is it raises this question. Why are Van Gogh paintings worth so much money? Why are they worth so much money when, during his lifetime, he couldn't sell one? Uh, I think there are three answers to that question. Number one, he was a genius. All right. Number two, he's dead. So there aren't going to be any more of those paintings. But number three, God likes them. God likes Van Gogh's. Now, the reason that I say that is because, interestingly enough, in Revelation 22, the word of the Lord reveals that the city of God is going to be full of masterpieces and that there are going to be two types of masterpieces in the city of God. Those people he has created and redeemed, and the things they've created. Those people that he has created and redeemed, and the things they've created. Look again at Revelation 22. Oh, excuse me, 21. Uh, this is what it says. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heavens and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Now here's the thing I want you to notice. Verse 24, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Again, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you see what John saw? When he got the vision of the holy city, it's not just full of people. It's not just full of angels. It's full of stuff. It's full of stuff. It's full of the glory and the splendor of the nations. Now, it may surprise you to learn that the city of God is going to be full of the splendor of the earth, but it shouldn't. It shouldn't surprise you. Because from the very beginning, God's word has revealed that human beings are made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 28 says this, Then the Lord God said, Let us make man in our image, 
in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Uh, theologians have debated that for many, many years, but I think the answer to that question is found in the context in which this claim is made, right? So if you back up in Genesis 1, where we learn that we're made in the image of God, what is the very first thing that Genesis 1, and in fact the only thing that Genesis 1 reveals about God? Well, the answer to that is found in verse 1 of the Bible. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created In the beginning, God created. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means simply this. You were made by God to make things for God. You were made by God to make things for God. You were created to create. And so it shouldn't surprise you that the city of God is going to be full of the people of God and the stuff that they've made for him. And boy, do we make stuff, right? Man, we are really good at creating things. We create language and lullabies, iPhones and the Internet, the Dodgers and dance, paintings and prescription medicine, banking and Broadway. And after the resurrection, the Word of God is really clear on the new heavens and the new earth. That stuff isn't going to go away. It's going to be redeemed. It's going to go forward into eternity future. It's going to continue to build in amazing and unimaginable ways, which is one of the reasons I want to propose that the works of Van Gogh and J.S. Bach and Michelangelo are still around today because God likes them. And those men and their God-glorifying works are going to continue into eternity future. But It raises an important question. Why then didn't anybody recognize the worth of Van Gogh's works when he was alive? And again, the answer, interestingly enough, is found in Genesis. Genesis 3, 1 through 7, in fact, say this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, God said, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You'll surely not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, did you notice what the very first thing human beings created was? Fig leaf briefs. That was our opening hand in, uh, in the creation department, right? This was our lead item. This was our debut. <laughs> Tells you something really important about why people didn't recognize Van Gogh's worth 
at the time. You see, once we had ingested independence from God, once we had decided that we could build our own way to heaven by the knowledge of good or sneak around God's revealed will through the knowledge of evil, uh, we had a problem because we no longer used our creative abilities to make things by God and for God. We used our creative abilities to literally cover our own butts. Right? That's what we decided to do. We decided, man, that's what I need to do. I've got to cover up. And that is why uh, Van Gogh's stuff wasn't valued at the time. See, it was new. And it was a novelty and a change in how art had been done. It was radical. And it was exposing. Um, how it was, it was risky to react to it. It was risky to embrace it or to consider it because it was so different. And so people were afraid. It didn't function as fig leaf briefs. It didn't function as cover. And, you know, we do the same thing. Most of our creative endeavors today are efforts to protect ourselves. They're efforts to cover our sin. They're efforts to hide our shame. They're efforts to hide from God and other people, which is why we have to check Olympic athletes for performance-enhancing drugs and why we have to question the motives of politicians and the press alike and why, sadly, we have to know where the exits are when we go into a movie theater. Um, Sin has tainted and twisted and corrupted our creativity. Once you rebel against your maker, the stuff you make no longer serves him. Personally, this affected my speech. Um, From childhood, I have had the gift of gab. I have had a uh, voracious intellectual curiosity, a uh, God-given ability to read social cues, And um, I used those as a kid to bank information uh, so that I could dole it out socially in an effort to acquire girlfriends. (laughs) Uh, My sin nature twisted my creative capacities and convinced me to use them to manipulate my way to popularity through the use of my tongue and the use of my eyes and the use of my mind and the use of my ability to manage a crowd. So pretty much from fourth grade on, I was the guy that you needed to talk to if you needed to know anything. And I was dangerous for that very reason. Needless to say, uh, this self-centered and insecure expression of my gifts made God's image in me hard to see. In a sense, I became a wreck. I became a shattered image, a damaged masterpiece. Which means that before God could add me to his city 
or anything that I was making with my gifts and abilities, I required what every damaged piece of art does before it can be hung in a gallery. I needed to be restored. I needed restoration. Maybe you do too. Uh, Maybe like me, you have misused your God-given abilities and tried to create a world that centers on yourself instead of God's glory. Uh, Maybe you were good with numbers, but rather than using that ability to uh, bless your neighbors with the ability to uh, lift themselves up financially, you decided you would just feather your own nest. Maybe you were gifted with physical beauty, but rather than enter a room and dignify people with the glorious attention God wants you to lavish on them, you captivate them so that you can have the power that comes from being the center of everybody's attention. Maybe you were given the ability to remain stable in a volatile situation, but rather than use that ability to smooth over misunderstandings and to serve as a calming and peaceful presence in the middle of chaos, you use it to establish your own comforts and keep yourself safe. Whatever it is, It ends up distorting your God-given beauty, and it ends up ugly, kind of like the Titanic sitting on the bottom of the ocean, rusting. What we need and what the things that we make with our gifts and abilities need is the same before they're ready for the city of God. We need to be restored. So how does that occur? Well, interestingly enough, Uh, Revelation 21 tells us how that happens too. Jesus recreates us. The maker remakes us. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, John says. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will be with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eye. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said... I am making everything new. I am making everything new. Well, how exactly does he who is seated on the throne do that? Well, in Revelation, we learn that he who is seated on the throne is the one we sang about earlier, the Lamb, right? The one that we declared in our declaration of faith from Zambia, right? He he is seated on the throne. He ascended to the throne. Jesus Christ is seated on the throne. And how exactly does he restore us? Um... He does it by lavishing his love on us. It's his love that lifts us up off the bottom of the ocean. It's his love that functions as a solvent to take away our shame, to take away our need to cover ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5 explains this where we read from Paul, For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. 
and he died for all, for those who live, excuse me, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. You see, at the cross, what happens is our creator stands up and basically says, hey, let's act like this whole rebellion thing was my fault. Let's act like it's my fault. And here's what's going to happen. You've rebelled against the author of life, but rather than striking you down, I'm going to die in your place. You've rebelled against your creator, but rather than unmaking you, I'm going to unmake myself in your place so that I can remake you. That's what happens at the cross. And it's why in Revelation 5 we read this. Then I saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. You see, only the cross can tell you what you're actually worth. It is the public auction at which Jesus Christ buys you for his Father. And what does he think you're worth? He thinks you're worth everything. He thinks you're worth everything. He's willing to lay his life down to buy you as a gift for his father. And what does his father think you're worth? He thinks you're worth everything. Jesus knew exactly what the father wanted. He wanted you. He wanted you. And so he bought you for his father. And real faith in that fact, it's got to be real. Real faith in that fact is transformational. Because it turns the blood of Christ into a solvent that washes away your shame. Washes away all the lies that the evil one tells you. It washes away all the lies that your fallen family passed down to you. It washes all the lies that the culture cranks at you over media day after day. It washes all of them away. Because when you look at the cross and you say, this and this alone tells me what I'm worth. This and this alone tells me how loved I am. This and this alone tells me why I was made. This and this alone says I was made by God for God. Then this is what happens, says John. First John 1. This is the message that we've heard from Jesus, and we declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. Which means that Vincent Van Gogh was right. When he wrote to a young man who he was mentoring in the quote on the front of your bulletin, this about Jesus. He said, Christ lived serenely as a greater artist than all other artists, despising marble and clay as well as color, working in living flesh. That is to say, this matchless artist, hardly to be conceived of by the obtuse instrument of our modern, nervous, stupefied brains, made neither statues nor pictures nor books. He loudly proclaimed that he made living men immortals. Amen. The question then becomes this. Have you let the matchless artist remake you? Have you let him touch you? Have you brought him your sin? Have you brought him your shame? Are you willing to let his blood touch the things that you're trying to fig leaf? You're trying to cover. Are you willing to be uncovered and laid bare before him? Are you willing to confess that you need him to tell you who you are? Once he does... He'll set you free to use your creativity to populate and decorate the city of God instead of covering yourself. Another way to ask the same question is, what are you creating with your life? Everybody's making something. Is it fig leaf briefs or is it something to the glory of God? Right? What are you, what are you spending your days doing? What are, you, what are you spending your time and your ability and your talents doing? What are you looking to for your worth? Is it the cross or how you compare to the idealized images people put on Facebook? Right? Where are you getting your identity? In uh, your Twitter feed and how funny and snarky you can be? Or what Jesus says about you? Where, where's your identity coming from? And who exactly are you living for? Are you living for yourself are you expending yourself like Jesus did on the cross for you to populate and decorate the city? What are you really about? Because when you come to Christ and you let his cross begin to redefine you, then your, cha- your talents themselves get transformed. Hopefully, you're experiencing a little bit of that right now. Um, I uh, still have a sin nature and My family will tell you that I can and do misuse my tongue. And yet, in spite of all that, uh, Jesus has chosen to work redemptively in my life so that my ability to understand people and uh, my intellectual curiosity and my comfort in front of crowds can, uh, in some instances, maybe even this one, become means through which God recreates folks. Means through which Jesus invites me to be part of the masterwork that he's doing creating immortals, and it's a gift, and it's a blessing to be part of it. I'm not as desperate for power or attention uh, or popularity as I used to be, and I no longer need a girlfriend. (laughs) Instead, I actually believe, by God's grace, that he loves me and that he gave himself for me and that he's delighted to use 
my abilities to glorify him and to fill my future home with friends that I'm going to know for eternity. Um, and among them will be you. I, I had the privilege of using my talents and abilities to help start this church before any of you knew it existed. Um, Twelve years ago, Giorgio Hyatt and I started talking about this church. Um, and it's amazing to see what's become of that idea and that dream. We, we drove through this neighborhood 11 years ago. And it's exciting. And the same can be true for you. Um, God can use you and your abilities to populate and decorate the city of God. But the only way that that can happen is if you learn to look to the cross for your identity instead of to yourself or your culture or your creations. Which uh, brings us to this table. Um, here is where we learn that how God works in human flesh. Um, this is where we get reminded that God created us for him to make things for him. So as I move down to the table, why don't you spend a few moments in silent reflection, and then we will prepare our hearts to receive the bread and wine together.